One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Leighton Hewitt, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Djokovic was able to put his feet up, but for women's champion Angelique Kerber, there was no rest for the wicked. She was brought crashing down to earth by Belinda Bencic as Switzerland reached the final four of the Fed Cup. The Netherlands recorded one of the most stunning upsets in the competition's history, and six of the eight matches in the top two groups were won by the away team. Meanwhile, Britain got itself a new top 100 player, and I, David Law, got my podcast partner back, Catherine Whitaker. TV Zone, Catherine Whitaker. Hello, welcome back. How are you doing? Putney Exchange Centre is ready and waiting for you. TV Zone, you got the memo about how to introduce me now and then. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. Mostly a pleasure to be back in the Putney Exchange, back where we belong, David. Is that siren coming for you, or is, or is that something you said on Eurosport that can't be repeated on the podcast? I don't usually hear sirens in Putney. It's usually such a genteel place. How unusual. Uh, So we've had a a lot going on since uh, you were last on the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph, Catherine Whitaker. For a start, I've had to do the whole thing single-handedly with a bit of help from Simon Briggs and John Wertheim and Chris Clary and my uh, assembled guests in Australia. I've got horrific jet lag uh, just five days since coming back. Um, uh, how, How are you? How are your guests on Eurosports Highlights show, which numbered Miles McLagan, and you were in the company of uh, of people like Greg Rosetsky and Virginia Wade throughout the Australian Open. What did they make of it all? I was, yeah, it was very, very interesting. Spend, spending most of my time, obviously there was the recording, but spending the rest of the time just in the green room watching watching the matches with uh, that esteemed company you mentioned. I mean, Miles is obviously just taken on a coaching role with with Borna Choric who crashed out in the first round much to I mean that's a difficult one for Miles isn't it obviously he wasn't pleased to see that you know he came in on day one that had already <laughs> rocked up on the first day of work and that had already happened overnight it reminds me of when we rocked up uh, when was it 2008 for BBC Radio 5 live to the Australian Open and we're, we're just sort of setting up the equipment Andy Murray's first match on against some bloke we've never heard of called Joe Wilfred Songer and next door the ABC Radio Australia guys were like ah oh, bloody hell they are, the, the, the Brits are going to get annoyed their, their blokes lost the first set in about half an hour uh, and that was a good accent wasn't it uh, anyway and uh, then eventually when Murray went out to Joe Wilfred Songer they said uh, 
Ah, they're going to be they're going to be crying next door. Murray's out before breakfast back home. Oh dear, it was a bit like that. But then, of course, I don't think. I mean, not that he was washing his hands of that defeat, but you know, it's 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 a good starting point. It's a clean slate starting point, I suppose, for Miles. He can ride in on his horse and hopefully make a make a real difference to to Bonacorich. He certainly got himself as good a as good a young player as you could possibly wish for. Talk about, you know, having a lot of raw talent to work with. Um, I mean, Virginia flew in for the last few days. She was snowed in in New York before that. So uh, It's very glam, isn't it? <laughs> it was very glam. Uh, and then suddenly one day I turned up and Virginia was there. And uh, she she, uh, she doesn't mean so well. She's, she's brilliant to watch tennis with. And on the... On the final, no, on the second to last day, on the day of the women's final, of course, the the live show was recording while Miles and I were, you know, getting ready and preparing, preparing our pre-recorded highlight show, and uh, I was in hair and makeup and uh, hair and makeup. We don't do that on the tennis podcast. Can I can assure you? you should, I'm sitting here in my pajamas right now. <laughs> I was in hair and makeup and there was an emergency call for the makeup artist to rush to the studio. This was just as uh, Angelique Kerber was winning and it was because Virginia was crying and needed a touch up, uh, which you know I thought they should have just let her go on air like that because it was the most wonderful reaction. She was so genuinely moved by the whole thing and I defy anyone not to have been a little bit moved, perhaps not to the point of physical tears, but um, I thought that was just marvellous really. You see, we can get away with that on the radio as well. I was bawling my eyes out. Nobody knew anything about it, apart from those who are listening on Five Live Sports Extra. Anyway, uh, Catherine Whitaker, the, uh, the the matches as and the storylines from the fortnight. I mean, it was never ending from a from because obviously from a British perspective, we've we've not really known anything like it. Certainly in my tennis following life uh, we have not had a grand slam tournament where we've had a, a male finalist a, a male doubles champion a female women's semi-finalist you know it, it was just one after another of storylines we, we, we were spoiled um, but it did make for a, a, a fabulous week of storylines but pretty grueling week what were your highlights and lowlights from the tournament. I've been asking that at Tennis Podcast. We'll, we'll get into that in a second. Well, I suppose there were sort of British highlights and lowlights, weren't there? I mean, yeah, as you say, it just it started to become surreal. You know, every day, every day that the Brits were playing, I'd introduce, uh, you know, welcome to the highlight show, and and we'd discuss, you know, we'd then in, introduce a counter match, and Miles and I would discuss, and I'd say, Miles, this is a really big deal, isn't it? And that was after, you know, she'd won her second or third round match. And then she won her fourth round match. And I was like, Miles, this, this really is a big deal now, isn't it? And then she won a quarter-final match. And I felt like turning to the viewer and said, we've been the boy who cried wolf, you know. We've been saying it's a big deal every point up to now. But trust me, this really, really is a big deal now. Because, I mean, I was running out of words to emphasise what a big deal. I mean, I hadn't even contemplated that as, a, as something that would happen within the realm's a vague possibility having having um, a, a British woman in the semi-finals, and it was. We well, want to stop being so cynical, Catherine Whitaker, because I thought it was a distinct possibility. Did you honestly? No. Didn't feature in any of your predictions, which I can't believe I'm bringing up. Oh yeah, why don't we get into that before we get into the highlights and lowlights? Uh, well, ju- just a, a quick headline, everybody. We did, of course, do the pre-tournament 
predictions uh, with uh, producer Dave and uh, student Matt and Simon Briggs and Catherine Whitaker, and I won. <laughs> I came second. I think what's happened here is we've the tennis podcast presenters collectively have covered themselves in glory. I think that's how it should be looked upon. Nice try. Uh, so highlights and lowlights. Highlights and lowlights. Um, well, I mean, Angelique Kerber, the ultimate highlight, not because it was Serena losing or anything. I mean, I would have loved another year watching Serena Williams go for the Calendio Grand Slam. But I, I mean, even the biggest Serena Williams fan, I suspect, pro- probably somewhere in themselves enjoyed uh, watching that match and watching Angelique Kerber's victory. Um, Doubt it. Oh, come on. I mean, just on a human level. I mean, even Serena Williams found it within herself to to thoroughly enjoy that moment. That's a good point. Her fans uh, should have been able to find it. Um, Lowlights. I mean, the match between Nadal and Vadasco was absolutely not a lowlight. The match itself was a highlight. The fact of Nadal going out first round was a a definite lowlight. I didn't enjoy that at all I mean little things like I really didn't enjoy watching Annalena Friedson cramp up in the way she did I found that really I actually turned off to another channel I had to subsequently re-watch it for the purposes of the highlight show and I really did find that incredibly difficult to watch just it's just a moment that stands out in my mind is um, similar when Jack Sock had the same experience at the US Open but he wasn't on the brink of something so life-changing in terms of his career that was the one difference it was distressing to watch but to see somebody so overwhelmed with emotion because her body was just basically letting herself letting her down at at the critical moment I agree with you that was tough and but at least I mean the only positive I can find from that is it emphasizes just how difficult what these athletes are doing are because she's obviously a very very fit um, well-conditioned woman but she'd never been on that stage before. She'd never been in those conditions. You know, it's, it's, it's not just about being on the treadmill for two hours a day, is it? It's about being used to the sort of stress that your body undergoes mentally and physically. So at least I think it shed light on just how monumental the physical, physical demands are um, on tennis players. Um, another highlight, I have to mention Zhang. Uh, Zhang Shui, because I just, I mean, I... Your face is lighting up at the mere mention. I thought she was wonderful, honestly. I, uh, it was a bit of a joke amongst the Eurosport production staff. Who are you going to support with Zhang versus Conta? Because I really did. Um, I just fell for the Zhang Shui story completely. I thought everything about it was just marvellous. Because, I mean, for a start, if a woman can have, what was it, 13, 14 first-round losses in Grand Slam tournaments having never won a match and get to the quarterfinals, there's hope for us yet. (laughs) There's literally hope for anyone yet. I mean, I've never won a Grand Slam match before, so a run to the quarterfinals could be on for me I, you're definitely not winning and one you know, and you know my policy on I hate I can't bear to watch people lose in front of their parents even if they're my least favourite tennis player in the world if their parents are watching I'm I, definitely bringing my parents along to our next match I will always support them so the fact that she'd got her parents there because she thought it might be her last Australian Open everything about it was just magical I thought magical it was magical. I agree with that. Uh, now, let's see what you lot think. At Tennis Podcast, Nicole Eclectic says Djokovic against Federer. 
uh, was her highlight. And she's obviously speaking from a Djokovic standpoint. Angelique Kerber against Serena in the final. The low light would be the injuries to Madison Keys and Milos Raonic, which which I'd agree with there because it was it was distressing to see Keys in that state, wasn't it, against Zhang and then Raonic who was playing so well against Murray, two sets to one up. It would have been really interesting to see whether things might have been different had he not got injured. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the Madison Keys injury obviously had a more direct, definite impact on, on the result of that match. There was, there was no sort of sliding doors, what might have happened without the in- injury. It would have been definitely completely different. She's not necessarily saying she would have won, but... She, could, she couldn't move by the end of the match, could she? Milos Raonic, it was more of a grey area of... You couldn't... Re, you know, he wasn't clutching at himself much. He wasn't... It wasn't that he couldn't hit a certain shot and it was more... But he wasn't moving the same way that he was in the first three sets. Now, I, I think you've also got to point to, to Andy Murray and the rest of those players that populate the, the top five in the world and say that's what makes them different. I mean, obviously unlucky to get an injury, but how often do you see those five players in the big moments of Grand Slam tournaments getting injuries? It, it rarely happens. It doesn't happen. And, uh, well, I mean, I don't know whether this is on our agenda to talk about, David, but Roger Federer is injured. I I, those words juxtaposed with one another don't... Roger Federer has had surgery to his knee. To He's had surgery, Catherine. I mean, the surgeon getting the phone call must have thought it was a hoax. No, you can't be the real Roger Federer. You don't get injured. You're made of Teflon, aren't you? Do you think he makes his own phone call? Excuse me, can I have a surgery, please? <laughs> um, I think if you want a last-minute uh, su- surgery from the best surgeon in the world maybe you have to be the real Roger Federer to make that happen I don't know. We shouldn't laugh should we because I mean what happened was the day after his match uh, against Novak Djokovic sounds as though he was walking in a forest or something like that and he just yeah just broke his meniscus, tore his meniscus and uh, and he's got to have this surgery they don't seem to be overly concerned about it, he's had it very quickly he's, he's done that and Roger Federer like he's already started his rehab perfectly and uh, well he hopes to be back in the next few weeks he's going to miss Rotterdam terrible shame for them I really feel for Richard Krejcik and, and the tournament team there one of the very best tournaments on the calendar and you know they they worked tirelessly to get Roger Federer back to the tournament and, and now he's not there and then obviously Dubai he'll miss out on as well they've got a fairly deep field but uh, one of those things, isn't it? What can you do? But Roger Federer should hopefully be back fully fit fairly soon. You should, well, I know mere mortals that have had that surgery and they've been back fully fit within a matter of uh, weeks, if not days. So I've no doubt that the, the mighty Roger Federer will, you know, he's, he's, he's probably out there now having a, having, a lengthy, having a lengthy hit. He'll be just fine. He's proving to us all that he is human. He's just reminding us. He's just ticking off a box of something he hasn't done yet. He's just, Surgery. He's just saying, I am 34, you know. Please please remember that when you watch me playing this brilliant tennis, wiping the floor with everybody but Djokovic. I am 34. That's what he's saying. Uh, what else have we got in terms of highlights and lowlights? Hugh Beasley says Djokovic the first two sets against Federer. And I've got to agree. I, I mean, we were we were commentating that on that and... It was, it was some of the most breathtaking tennis I've ever seen. It was on a par with the Wimbledon semi for me of Federer against Murray. Uh, he, his movements were so explosive. And 
he was so intense. I mean, you, you know, you, you often see Djokovic able to win matches in a cruise control that Serena Williams sometimes goes into matches in. This time, and, it, and I remember the podcast that we last recorded here at the Putney Exchange Centre, Catherine Whitaker, when you were talking about the, the performance you saw Djokovic put in against Nadal in the final in Doha, 6-1-6-2. These two sets were 6-1-6-2. Then he goes and wins the first set against Andy Murray, 6-1. And I use the, the expression statement tennis. And I think that that's what he's doing to these guys at the moment. I think he's saying to everybody, look, I'm not going to just be the best player in the world at the moment. I'm going to prove to you, every single one of you watching right now, and to these blokes opposite me, even the best in the world, that I can wipe the floor with them. Yeah, frightening, absolutely frightening viewing for anybody that's a tennis player and that isn't Novak Djokovic. I agree, it was as good as complete and as dominant uh, performance for those two sets as I as I s- certainly can remember. I mean, I never watched Rod Laver play or live or anything like that. So I'd, uh, intergenerational comparisons, as we know, David, are a very tricky area. But certainly in my memory, that's his in- incredible performance, really, as I've seen. And, yeah, the steel in his eye... As um, as he was doing it was um, formidable and just really frightening. I mean, everybody, everybody, even Roger Federer and Andy Murray included now, are walking onto court three love down against Novak Djokovic. I mean, that's what's that's what's happening, and and that is that is you know it's an old cliche that that's what the world number ones and the great players do, but they don't usually do it to their closest rivals, you know, and that's what he is doing and it's um, I mean I I would it's so such dominance now that if I I would be struggling for motivation a little if I was Federer or Djokovic come on no I mean the gap is so enormous you you can't Federer beat him a few times last year and Murray's beaten him in Cincinnati I don't buy that at all I think I think if anything it it strengthens the motivation talking to Chris Clary on the the podcast during the Australian Open he was talking about Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams he said he thinks that the struggle she's having to topple Serena and the years of failure to do so will lengthen her career well that's probably where uh, great champion is made up differently to how I am that probably ex- ex- <laughs> you'd go and hide under the duvet I would just I mean it's not the sort of gap where you can go I would it's not the sort of gap where you can go I'm only going to spend an extra I'll spend an extra hour in the gym every day and I will it's not going to make the difference that's not going to make up that gap what is what on earth can they possibly do to make up that gap they've got to hope he falls over no no they're just going to get better and they're going to become more mentally strong aren't they? Yeah, but so, so is Novak Djokovic. I think that gap is so big. So, so big. I, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that Murray and Fed, no one's going to win a Grand Slam. Of course, anything can happen, you know. Federer might have thought he would never win a French Open, but then Robin Soderling came along and did him a huge favour, didn't he? I mean, that, that can happen. I'm not, of course they shouldn't give up, but I think they're now in the territory of having to hope for a Robin Soderling-type moment rather than thinking... I can close that gap and be as good as him. You know, just give me a few months and I'll, I'll be there. It's not happening. There you go, Robin. Get yourself out of retirement pretty sharpish. Uh, now, what else have we got going on here? We've got 
Hugh Beasley, who says uh, Rafael Nadal going out in the first round was his low light. We've got Brian Ray saying Kirby getting it done in the final. What an amazing story that was. I mean, you mentioned Virginia Wade crying during that, and and I can I can really buy that because that was the the fulfilment of a lifetime ambition. You could hear it in her speech. That wonderfully delirious rambling emotional speech from Angelique Kerber got to be one of the best speeches that we've had after a Grand Slam title win I would say that yeah I don't think there's anybody that didn't didn't delight a little bit in her achieving her dream I remember I can't remember the context I think we were gearing up to record a recent podcast and we were looking at the the women's top 10 and we were going through it I can't remember for what purpose and you stopped on Angelique Kerber and you said I've got a lot of respect for her and I I I mean not that I don't and didn't have a lot of respect for her but I questioned you on why you particularly singled her out in a top 10 of obviously plenty of uh, women deserving of respect and you just said well she's just this great professional you never see her get knocked out early she always pretty much achieves her seeding she's a hard-working great professional that doesn't get enough attention and and um i said this today you did actually did brilliant (laughs) do you not remember that no i do you can keep going carry on right i'm hoping i didn't hallucinate this um and uh and yeah i think it was exactly those sentiments which led to all this goodwill for her because um, it, it's somebody that's just worked so, so, so hard. And I mean, I, I didn't give her a chance in that final. I couldn't find anybody giving her any chance in that final. You know, all the the incredibly in, intelligent, tennis-savvy pundits that I were working with didn't give her a chance in that final, and we're confident enough about it to say it on air. Um, you know, I thought her second serve would be eaten for breakfast by Serena Williams, and yes... She profited a bit from Serena's nerves. But number one, you've still got to deal with that. And number two, you know, Serena's experienced showing signs of nerves in most of her Grand Slam finals she's played, and she doesn't usually lose them. So I don't think that should detract anything from Angelique Kerber. She she was magnificent. She really was. I, I absolutely loved commentating on that. It was one of, one of my career highlights to be able to describe that victory the way she went about it the way she just absorbed these enormous blows of power that she was getting sent in her direction and just stayed with it and and believed in herself and and I don't know I think thoroughly deserved Victor I I'm not convinced she will ever win another Hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch court says in Longland all day? You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. The Grand Slam title, to be honest, she might. But I, I think that she is not a standout player compared to the rest. Frankly, who cares? You know, frankly, who cares? She's won a Grand Slam and nobody can ever take that away from her. I agree. I think she'll contend. I think she'll get to lots more semi-finals. I think she, she could win one or two more. But I don't see this as she's suddenly going to go on and become a lot more dominant than, than she is. Um, but... Yeah, it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, and just her face, and even the next day when you saw her on the trophy photo shoot that they do in Australia, her f- she didn't seem to show any of the stresses of thinking, God, I'm a Grand Slam champion now, the expectations are going to be greater, and what if I don't win another one? And she doesn't seem to me like somebody that will be crippled by those sorts of thoughts and the pressure that comes with being a Grand Slam champion. I think she'll just keep working away, keep hoping and dreaming of winning more, but if she doesn't, this will be enough, I think. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. Uh, Brian says his low light was the match-fixing story. And I, I can see where he's coming from, from a sort of tennis fan's perspective. It was obviously a negative storyline to have rumbling around. But the, the flip side to that, I would say, is that I think it's turned a much-needed spotlight on the situation and... We saw some typically very quick reaction from Chris Commode in bringing together everybody in the game to set about setting up a a panel, uh, an independent review, and promising to put in the necessary resources to change anything that needs changing. I just think that, I mean, I'm a glasses half full kind of person, to be quite honest, and I think that that is actually a good thing, ultimately. Yes, I mean, I have to say, I even in light of this report, I'm not overly concerned about match fixing in tennis. I don't, but I think logically, it doesn't make sense for it to be a big problem at the top of the sport. I mean, if 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 I'm putting myself in the shoes of a match fixer, it it makes no sense for me to try and to try and bribe somebody that would you know cost hundreds of thousands to fix a match you obviously go for a low level person where you can slip them 50 quid and I you know I don't know what numbers are involved but logically it doesn't make sense for it to be occurring at the top of the sport on an epidemic scale I don't think and certainly again I mean you wouldn't want it to be happening in high profile matches you don't want attention to be drawn to to matches where, where there's going to be irregular betting patterns. So I think there are those two things are safeguards, I think, for it ever becoming a major issue at the top of the sport. But um, I think anything that sort of just guards against complacency makes the authorities sort of clean house and look at themselves and make sure that the safeguards are there to prevent it ever 
potentially becoming a big issue is a really good thing and I think the response has been good and um, I've, I've, you know, I've no issue with power being held to account by the media I mean I know there are question marks over how it was done and all the rest of it and those notwithstanding I think it's basically a good thing I agree with you Ali says very pleased to see some of the young men getting it done I suspect she's uh, referring to Mr Milos Raonic who I think did what we thought he might do certainly I thought he might Anyway, Catherine Whitaker, I seem to remember I predicted you'd beat Stan Wawrinka, didn't I? You did. Although I should say, I mean, maybe this is people in very fragile glass houses throwing stones. I would question calling him a young man. I mean, He's younger than you and me. Yeah, but well, that's glass houses, isn't it? I'm not sure that qualifies somebody as being young anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, he's 25. <laughs> he's not. He's he's not. Alex Zverev or Borna Cioric or, you know, he and Nishikori and Dimitrov, they're not the young guns anymore. They are, they are younger than the ones dominating the game. <laughs> but that's the only... They're only relatively young compared to Djokovic and Federer and, and Murray. They are not young guns. Sorry, Ali. Catherine said that, not me. Uh, men's doubles drawer falling apart was a low light for Ali. Uh, and uh, Nenad says the best women's final in years was the highlight. I'm up with, I'm up there with you on that one. And for me, I would say Jamie Murray winning the doubles title was my highlight of the tournament. Uh, I, I, I had a chance to cover that and I had a tear in my eye when he had a tear in his eye, I can tell you. Um, I, I, I just... And speaking to a couple of the journalists afterwards, like Mike Dixon and Simon Briggs, who'd been in a press conference with Jamie three years ago at the Australian Open, when he was more or less saying, I think I may just pack it in. You know, he'd had years and years of going from partner to partner. After the the relationship with Eric Buterak ended, I think he went through more than 40 partners before he finally came across John Pierce. 4-0. 4-0. Yeah, it just went from partner to partner. You're talking about a six, seven-year gap in time here when Jamie Murray was just, frankly, in the wilderness. He couldn't get near the Davis Cup team. He couldn't... He'd had that amazing success with Yeleni Jankovic in the Wimbledon mixed doubles in 2007. Let's not forget, that's nine years ago. And he'd spent years in the wilderness. He's a lovely bloke, isn't he, Jamie Murray? He's a really nice fella. And... To see him without direction and w- without the solution to, to his own success was, was demoralising, actually, to witness. And I remember thinking a number of times, just find a partner, like a, somebody that you can stick with. I know it's really easy for me to sit here and say that, but that stuck out as being the biggest problem for me. And I'm sure it's a problem for a lot of these doubles players. But with John Piers he got a, over that issue and he got an established regular partner reached two grand slam finals split up at the end of last year we had him on the show of course and he told us about that decision and how he, he joined up with Bruno Suarez who incidentally he's got to be one of the most laid back uh, charming fellas that I've come across so far in tennis and immediately I was struck by what a good partnership and fit this seemed to be not only in terms of their game styles but their personalities and to see Jamie Murray get over the finish line with his brother watching at one in the morning in a virtually deserted stadium I I found that really something 
Yeah, I was very emotional about it. I completely agree with you about it seeming like a good fit. Just from sort of seeing them together, they were out in Doha and I was there and they were up for doing interviews and just so laid back about it all. It was obviously just working on and off the court. They reached the semi-finals there, they won Sydney. It just obviously was clicking and the way that they won it was just encapsulated partnership didn't it Jamie failing to serve it out he was it looked like his arm was made of lead and I really thought oh my goodness gracious me this this that that could be the turning point it could be could be problematic from here and then Bruno Suarez as you say with his laid-back nerves don't bother me attitude rides in on his horse I mean Jamie produced some good play to break immediately back as well and Suarez serving it out that was teamwork right there you're nervous, Jamie, but don't worry, I've, I've got this. Um, and just everything about it from their speeches, you know, Bruno Suarez saying, uh, <laughs> saying, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and then 20 minutes later, Jamie Murray taking the microphone and saying, well, for someone that doesn't have much to say, Bruno, you've just talked for a blooming long time. Uh, and yeah, ev- what he said about his wife in the speech was, you know, I don't want to get too totes emotion on the podcast but it was really really lovely what he said about his wife and I know he elaborated on it in his press conference and it was just I mean everything about it was heartwarming wasn't it oh I'm filling up as we speak anyway uh, my low light uh, Catherine Whitaker was actually something that I think has ultimately turned out just fine um, and that was probably seeing Nigel Sears fall ill I found that very hard to, to, to report on at the time. I mean, we were on air on Five Live Sports Extra. Nigel's somebody I've got to know pretty well on BT Sport, commentating in the middle of the night on all sorts of tournaments. He's a cracking guy and a really, really good tennis coach, as, as we've seen throughout the years. And, and that was a really, a really difficult thing to, to, to see also because the effect that it had on on Andy Murray I think and I know that I mean I've been going to the Australian Open I've been lucky enough to go for the last 12 or 13 years but I missed two editions of it uh, for the birth of my two kids and and I can I can just imagine what Andy Murray was was going through um, with all this going on in his head you know and and, um, I think ultimately it's it's worked out just fine Nigel's 100% fit again he feels fine he's He's off to St. Petersburg this week with Anna Ivanovic to, to, to coach her there and then Dubai the week after. So all's well that ends well in that regard. But that was a very, that, was a, that rattled me certainly at the time. Um, but overall, the Australian Open was brilliant this year, I thought, in, in loads of ways. I think it was without certain epic matches. I think there, were, there weren't the, the instant classics that we may have seen at certain other tournaments certainly up until that women's final anyway yeah for me it was more about with the exception of that women's final that had everything it had the narrative and the storyline as well as it being a great great match I think it was more an event of storyline great storylines rather than great matches there were a couple of and it lacked up until Murray Raonic which again unfortunately ended on that slightly bum note of of the Raonic injury it lacked a night match that caught fire I thought I mean that's one of the things that's so brilliant about the Australian Open it lacked I mean if only I wish Nadal Vadasco had been a night match it felt like it deserved to be um, I can understand why it wasn't it was early on and the scheduling's a nightmare early on there are so many matches that weren't being a night match but anyway I think it lacked a few really great matches a few matches that felt like they should have caught fire you know Vavrinka 
Brownich was good and on paper looked like a great match, but never really... They were kind of good at different times, weren't yeah. they, those two? They kind of played five sets and Brownich played three really good ones around it. Vavrinka played two really good ones and the others were rubbish in between. Exactly, and I think there's a few matches that you could have said that about. But in terms of narratives and storylines, you know, I'm going to mention Magal Zhang again. <laughs> she was just great. Um, yeah, in terms of narratives and storylines, I do think it had a lot. The other Grand Slams haven't a lot of fairy tales and dreams coming true. Oh dear, this is a very emotional tennis podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph, isn't it? Uh, let's get even more emotional, Catherine, because from a British perspective, overnight, Naomi Brody has become a top 100 player for the first time in her career, making six British players inside the top 100 in the singles rankings at the moment. For the first time, we reckon, in 30 years. For the first time in my lifetime. Isn't that amazing? Not not your lifetime, David, but right. first time in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. I know you're particularly delighted about this Nomi Brody news because she likes a bit of aggro and you like a bit of aggro. Oh, she did. If you haven't seen it, see if you can look it up on YouTube from a few weeks ago, just before the Australian Open, when in, where was it? Was it Hobart or somewhere like that? Hobart or Auckland? I can't remember which one it was. Uh, she... She kicked off against his opponent who'd, uh, who'd thrown a racket to the ground after losing a point and it hit the ball boy. Hope the ball kid's okay, by the way. However, uh, it was hilarious to watch Naomi Brody go up to the umpire and say, aren't you going to default her for that? <laughs> I absolutely loved that. Immediate YouTube sensation. 50% of those hits on YouTube are David Law watching that. You should be aware. Uh, that's right. But, it, I mean, you know, it's, it's, isn't it nice to see uh, a number of British players in the top under? There are three British women. Obviously, Joe Conter's at number 28 in the world. Heather Watson's down in the 70s, or sorry, in the 84, I think she is now. And uh, Brody is up there at 96 now. In the men's, we had an all-British challenger final for the first time in more than a decade between Dan Evans, from my hometown, and... Uh, and Carl uh, Edmund, the eventual champion, who won, of course, tiebreak tens at the end of last year uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, and I think we saw then, didn't we, at tiebreak tens, that this this guy, and you saw him again in Doha, he kind of flaked down in the in the final uh, rungs of that match. He's got to learn how to win five set matches. That much is clear uh, against uh, the chap from Bosnia, Juma. Um, but. Uh, a, another dominating win in a challenger tournament and then that's his fourth title overall at that level he's now 84 in the world and he's going places and justifying this decision to to go to the states and play challenges rather than trying to enter qualies you know I'm, i think he probably i think he could have gone into qualies at, at rotterdam and that sort of thing very much um justifying that brave well perhaps not brave but you know, he could easily have thought, I'm top 100 now. I want to be trying to get into main draws. You know, he's had a taste of playing on centre courts, playing big matches. He could have gone, well, I just want to do more of that, please. I don't want to flog around the Challenger Tour anymore. But no, he's all about the hard work, not about the limelight at all, although I'm sure he will go to enjoy it. And um, I, God, I wish him well. He's the sort of person that you really want to see succeed and um, not at the expense of Dan Evans necessarily but still a great result for Dan Evans to get to the final so uh, I know you were very excited about that David. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting isn't it to see whether we talked about it in the first week of the year whether he can actually get to the top 100 he's now what is he 150 something in the world um, it's not too far away now. 
he can do it. He can do it. He needs to now... I mean, this is the test, isn't it? You reach a final, he needs to now not go home and spend two weeks on the sofa, as great as that can be. I can vouch for that. He needs to, you know, push on and reach another final next week or in a couple of weeks' time, or that's what it's about for Dan Evans, isn't it? We know he can play great tennis. He's off to Poland, he tells me. So that's where he's off to next. Uh, And uh, let's hope he uh, carries on that run from a tennis podcast bias predictions point of view. Uh, Now, the Fed Cup has been going on, Catherine Whitaker, over the last few days. And I mean, I love the matches and stories that that generates, the passion, the, the excitement. I mean, six of the eight ties in the World Group and the World Group 2 were away wins. Um, there were wins for Switzerland over Germany. Belinda Bencic played two singles matches and beat Andrea Petkovic and Angelique Kerber, then joined up with Martina Hingis. What a combination that is to win the doubles. And uh, they'll now face Czech Republic, the defending champions, who beat Romania 3-2 in Romania. And surely the best story of the lot, Netherlands beating Russia 3-0 in Moscow. First time they've, they've been into the semi-finals for nearly 20 years now. And they did it with two players who aren't even inside the world's top 100. Kiki Burtons and Rikal Hogenkamp. You know, 106 and 141 in the world respectively. And these players joined up to beat Makarova and Kuznetsova. I mean, it's absolutely amazing what they've done. Your classic giant killing, like Reading are going to do against West Brom in the next round of the FA Cup. Just got that in there. Um, it would have to be a giant killing, wouldn't it? Let's be honest. It'd be like you beating me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm all for giant killings, frankly. I th- it's brilliant. Well done, Paul Harhus. Certainly is well done, Paul Harhus, who I spoke to at the Australian Open, and uh, he was talking me through how they were basically cobbling together all of these victories with players who don't have a particularly high ranking. And, and I think even he was surprised. But knowing what he's like, and I remember all the, all the years that he played the Royal Albert Hall tournament, and, and he was beating players, frankly, that were so much more famous than him. He won the tournament three years in a row. I mean, you know, he wasn't really expected to be doing that. And uh, he was, you know, sort of in there to make up the numbers in many ways, and he just kept winning the thing. Uh, so I'm not hugely surprised that he would overturn the odds. A quick word as well for Hogenkamp, who beat Kuznetsova in the longest rubber in Fed Cup history. Three hours and 49 minutes. Fantastic result that is for them. And uh, yeah, great, great story. But the Fed Cup is a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, it's a fantastic event in terms of its the excitement it generates. But if you were to sort of, if I was to sort of speak to my mother and try to explain to her what's going on with Britain in the, the zonal group ties in, in Israel, and if they win through those, they get through to a playoff that could get them into World Group 2 and then there's a World Group 1, I'd have no chance. No, I mean, I don't think you'd have much chance of trying to explain it to me, to be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling a bit. I think there's there's something brilliant in there. I mean, I was watching that Switzerland-Germany tie and just loving it and everybody cared a lot about it and the crowds were good and it was just brilliant. There is something really great there and I I understand the difficulties of of the ITF trying to structure these competitions around a, just the most convoluted calendar imaginable and the three different governing bodies and all this, you know, these interrelating organisms in tennis. And, and I understand it must be blooming difficult trying to structure a competition Otherwise they like would be this. doing it differently, surely. Well, exactly. But 
I just think there has to be a way that it can be just a little more um, fan friendly than than it than it is because I I want to get on board with the Fed Cup desperately and I did did a lot of reading about it at the weekend to try and get it straight in my mind you know obviously I understand the world group stuff and that's all clear but as you say Great Britain playing in Israel playing two great I mean just what was going on there I can't I can't really fathom it and if they they could possibly make some minor changes to it to make it a bit more communicable to the to the average fan I think that would be to the benefit of the sport yeah, maybe they could do what they did with the whole match-fixing and suspicious betting uh, story at the Australian Open and just get everybody in a room and sort it out and say, right, we're not leaving this room until we've got this all worked out. The whole tennis calendar, that's what I'm talking about. Anyway, maybe I'm just living out a cloud cooked land a bit, really, because there's so many uh, different vested interests in the sport and it is difficult to change stuff. Anyway, Catherine Whitaker, what we have done is recorded another tennis podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph. It's been fun, this, hasn't it? Uh, quick word as well, just to say, Rafael Nadal has signed up to play in the Aegon Championships at the Queen's Club again, 13th to the 19th of June. He joins Andy Murray in the field, lost to Alex Dolgopolov in the first round last year, did Nadal, but it's always a buzz, isn't it, to see him come back? It is a buzz, yeah. I mean, even if he's not coming in as French Open champion, I remember all those years when he would rock up the day after winning the French Open and the buzz was extraordinary. None of that buzz really is worn off. None of he's he's won so much and done so much that it's a it's a permanent sheen on his on his person now rather than something temporary and uh, he he does bring something to that tournament, regardless of where he is in the world or who he's lost to last week. I mean I'm by no means writing him off. I don't mean it to sound like, you know, he'll have come in off the back of a first round loss in Paris and have his tail between his legs. But I'm saying it doesn't really matter. He'll still bring something to that tournament that nobody else can. Well said. Catherine Whittaker here with us on the Tennis Podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Thank you for listening to us. Do review us on iTunes. Do follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, anything you like. Go and have a look at the predictions. See how those results worked out. I can guarantee you they worked out very, very well. We'll speak to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 